Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our text this morning is not one of the readings that is included in your bulletin, so I would invite you to, if you would like, to turn in, your, in a hymnal to the Psalms section, and I'm going to be preaching from Psalm 138. You can follow along, and we'll be touching on all the various uh, readings as there are so often interconnected. So listen as I read Psalm 138. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul, you increased. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth. And they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. But the haughty, he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. This world is full of trouble. I think you all would agree with me on that. It's filled with pandemic, Russia invading Ukraine, inflation. We certainly uh, feel inflation in our own pocketbooks, but inflation is a a problem worldwide that's leading to governments being toppled and people uh, not being able to afford to buy food. It could get worse. Climate change, lots of people put climate change towards the top of their list. Mass shootings, a bit of an epidemic in our country, isn't it? Degeneracy in our culture, drag queen story hour, pride month that we just came out of, coming into our public spaces, coming into our schools. Now, to the extent that these crises are real or imagined, legitimate or overblown. I think some of them are a little of both. What is striking is the one thing we never hear from our national and international leaders, our elites, never do they call upon the name of the Lord. Have you noticed that? There's no sackcloth and ashes. There's no call for fasting and prayer. There's no... Uh, uh, appeal to return to your churches. There's maybe a little bit of that, but en masse. There's no acknowledgement that God even exists. We're going to create our own utopia. We're going to create our own heaven on earth. And it reminds me of the story that uh, this this uh, story often comes to me. It's found in 2 Kings chapter 1, where one of the northern kingdom of Israel's wicked kings, I believe it was Ahaziah, 
he, he had a fall. He fell through some lattice and he was laid up in bed and was maybe not going to uh, pull through. And, and he sent messengers to go to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, right? And the prophet at that time was, was the great Elijah, right? And Elijah meets these messengers from, the, from this wicked king along the road. And he says, is it because there is no god in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Is there no God in heaven that can heal the earth? Is there no God in heaven that can cure diseases, heal brokenness, save sinners? In our psalm, David casts for us as an example of prayer, but he also casts this vision right in the middle of this prayer. And if you have the text open, you'll see it beginning at verse 4. Verses 4 and 5. It's a glorious future vision. And it's really the opposite of what I've just been talking about. It says in verse 4, All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. This is a, a glorious vision, is it not? It, again, it, it's, it's the opposite of what we tend to see in our world today. Now David himself is surrounded by enemies who do not regard his God. This is often the case and he writes these psalms, quite a number of psalms that have been collected for us are written uh, from the hand of King David. Uh, he prays often to God to deliver him from his enemies. But in this instance, in the middle of this particular psalm, the Spirit takes David to this glorious vision when God's enemies will one day be his worshipers. But where does David get this notion? Is it just wishful thinking on his part? You know, when you're, when you're up against a whole bunch of enemies that want to take your life, it, it'd be kind of nice to, to, for God to turn them into your friends, right? That would be kind of convenient. So is this just wishful thinking on David's part? No, it, it, this is really the ultimate fulfillment of God's purposes in redeeming the world from the curse of sin. This is fulfilling the promise given to Abraham when God said, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the fulfillment of a later prophet named Habakkuk where we read in Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is the same vision we read about a thousand years or so after David in Revelation chapter 21 and beginning at verse 24. And it reads, By its light the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it glory and the honor of the nations. So David is caught up in this vision as well. But notice in the text that there's a little bit of a twist we see in verse 6. It, this, this revival, this, this uh, uh, saving of these kings, bringing uh, glory uh, and, and giving uh, glory to God does not come about exactly as we and certainly the, the elites in the world might that they might not expect it this way 
When many think of the kings and queens of the world, our elites, our billionaires, all the influencers, right, coming into the presence of the Lord, they picture the accompaniment of a great delegation. Lots of pomp and circumstance. You know, here we come marching. We're dressed in our finest. We're in top hats and tails and all of that. And, and, and uh, that's kind of how they might imagine this would be. You know, they're, they're, they're decided to, uh, to uh, do this thing. Lots of pomp and circumstance. But notice the twist that we see at verse 6. David says, For though the Lord is high... He regards the lowly. The path toward this redemption, the path toward this blessing, the path towards our leaders calling upon the name of the Lord is one of humility. Right? Because it says in the text, it says, He regards the lowly, but the haughty, the arrogant, the prideful... He knows from afar. It's not exactly the way some would maybe expect, right? You think that if I've reached these uh, the 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 heights of culture, if I've accumulated the the wealth of nations, if I've accumulated all these things, and I have all the degrees, and I have all of the elite positions in the universities, that's where it's at. That places me, you know, here's God and eh, here, here I am, right? And so often you see that, that the elites in our world, and sometimes us as well, we kind of want to have an attitude where we're standoffish to God. Eh, we don't, but, but in the text, it's God who is standoffish to them, right? He regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. So let's talk about having a haughty spirit. What are some of the fruits of a haughty spirit? I know haughty is not maybe a word we use very often, but it's, it's prideful, it's, it's arrogant. You, you, you know some of the synonyms that, uh, that, you, that come to mind. Some of the fruits of a haughty spirit would be prayerlessness. Prayerlessness. A haughty spirit doesn't pray because they have no need of anything. Everything they have, they got from their, for themselves. Therefore, there's no, there's no spirit of, of uh, gratitude. Fruit of, the, fruit of a haughty spirit would be ingratitude. Who is there to thank? Now, they might devise gods... They might thank the, the, uh, give thanks to the universe. They might devise a God to which they want to give thanks to, but not a God that they are ultimately accountable to. Not a God who made them. Not a God to whom they one day will have to give an account. They're not grateful to that God. Again, they want to have a stance where they keep God at an arm's length they don't want to regard God, but according to the text, it's God that doesn't want to regard them. And then thirdly, the fruit of a haughty spirit is no worship. 
And it really goes, it's not really a progression, it's more of a regression. There's prayerlessness, which leads to ingratitude. If you're not asking a higher power, a creator God for anything, what is there to give thanks for when he does pour out your blessings in spite of your faithlessness? What's there to give thanks for? And then therefore it leads to no worship. Why would you worship such a God that you created out of your own imagination? We're often this way ourselves, aren't we? Seasons of prayerlessness, where we're living almost as practical atheists. Seasons where we are not grateful for all the things that God gives to us life and breath and everything. And we also absent ourselves from the church. We find excuses to stay away. We're tired. I'm often tired on Sunday morning. (laughs) And you and I know too many people that have fallen into this pattern. You have children, grandchildren, Baptized, confirmed, and even confessing Christians who never pray, never express gratitude, and as a result, never or rarely ever meet together with the church for public worship of word and sacrament, are living like practical atheists. Is it a haughty spirit? Is it pride? Is there no God in heaven? But we want to be those that the Lord regards. So let's consider the fruits of a humble spirit. It's just really the opposite. It's a life of prayer. Abraham gives us a good example in the Old Testament reading. He, 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 he's very concerned. Who's living in Sodom? Where, where God's judgment is ready to rain down? His nephew Lot who it might seem strange to us if you know the story of Lot to think of him as a righteous man, but the Bible considers him, speaks of him as a righteous man. So so Abraham, in humility, but also boldly, intercedes on behalf of his nephew, righteous Lot. Right? It's a life of prayer. It's just one example in Abraham's life. He knows the Lord. He knows where his bread is buttered, so to speak. Right? And he lives a life of prayer. In the Lord's Prayer, we read in the Gospel lesson, Jesus teaches us to pray for our daily bread. A daily reminder that everything necessary for this physical life is given to us as a gift. And inasmuch as we pray for our daily bread, are we not at the same time giving God our gratitude for his gifts to us? Right? It's, it's daily bread. Every day, God's mercies are renewed. Every morning. We say with James, James writes, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. So this life of prayer, again, let me, let me, let me stress, not perfectly. None of us does it perfectly. But by God's grace, we do it characteristically. We're a new people. We're a renewed 
given a renewed spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So this, this life of prayer, this life of gratitude leads to a life of worship. And really, all of this is a life of worship. It's, it's gathering with the saints. The doors of the church are open. The music's playing. The songs are being sung. The word is proclaimed. Sins are confessed. Absolution is giving. All of that is what should draw us here as an example, as an exercise of our life of worship. But it's more than that, isn't it? It's, it, it is those moments. I know a lot of people, they want to say, oh, I, I don't need to go to church. I just want to, I just go worship God when I take a walk in the woods. Well, that's wrong-headed. Because here is where God and his word and sacraments are distributed. Here is where the blessings of God and the corporate worship of God takes place. In which it tells us, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. It's sinful to avoid corporate worship. But the beauty of it is, is that when we go out from here... And whether we go out this afternoon or sometime later this week, and we do go for that walk in the woods, we are in the right mind because we truly are connected to the Creator who created all that beauty around us. Right? That is a life of worship. So how shall we shed this destructive spirit of haughtiness and nurture rather a spirit of humility look again in the text look at what david writes in his psalm here look at verse two this gives us a clue in verse two he says i bow down toward your holy temple now a temple can be admired for its architecture it can be admired for its craftsmanship but that's not what David's talking about here. The temple is the place where sacrifice for sin is done. Where sins of atonement are accomplished. Where sins are forgiven. And remember Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it again. And his disciples after he was risen from the dead realized that he was talking about his own body. So for us, when we bow down toward your holy temple, we have the cross of Jesus Christ in mind. Is there anything that can create more humility in us than contemplating the cross of Jesus Christ? Also in the text he says that uh, I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. It's remembering the promises of God. God has promised to be faithful in showing mercy and kindness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. Right? He is staking these promises on his very name given to us in his word. And if we can refer to the, uh, the epistle lesson. Paul speaks often to this. 
Again, cultivating this spirit of humility. Look at what he writes, Paul, going flipping to the New Testament here in Colossians chapter 2. And we'll close with this. Notice as we read, beginning in verse 6, all of the divine passives. All of this is passive. These are things done for you. Right? Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, all passive, done for you, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Down at verse 11. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him having forgiven us all our trespasses. That's David bowing down toward the holy temple. Right? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with, this, with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This is what leads us to a spirit of humility. This leads us to a spirit of gratitude. And this leads us to a life of the worship of the living God. Amen. And now by the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For Jesus' sake. Amen.